This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello and welcome to today's programme. We ended our last programme with a story from the Harvard Business Review and the History Files of Xerox. By Brian Uzi and Shannon Dunlap, it was titled Make Your Enemies Your Allies and described how John Clendenin, a recently appointed manager just out of business school, turned a rival into an ally. There's an addendum that finishes the story, but before we go into that, let's set about a cheetah motivation for the program today as we usually do. That is, may this program become the cause of my enlightenment so I can help all other beings also attain enlightenment. Thank you. Now you may remember that the Harvard Business Review article indicated how John Clendenin used the three R's, that's redirection, reciprocity, and rationality, to win over his rival, one Tom Gunning, who had thought he should have got the job over Clendenin. In step one, Clendenin took Gunning out for a lunch, during which he redirected his rival's negative emotions so that they were channeled away from himself. He made Gunning understand that a third entity beyond the control of both of them was the root cause of their situation. I didn't put you in this position, Glendennon said. Xerox put us both in this position. That was the basis for the next step, step two, reciprocity, in which you offer your rival something of value, but which needs little effort or resources from them to reciprocate. Clendenin promised to support Gunning's leadership development and future advancement in, at Xerox while offering him the chance to attend executive-level meetings. For Gunning, that was very valuable in gaining visibility, credibility and connections, while Clendenin profited from Gunning's on-hand technical and organizational expertise. Thus, his offer created the purest form of reciprocity. If Gunning attended the meetings, Clendenin would never have to explicitly request a quid pro quo. The article says, Reciprocity involves considering ways that you can immediately fulfill a rival's need or reduce a pain point. Live up to your end of the bargain first, but figure out a way to ensure a return from your rival without the person's feeling that pressure. The third step, rationality, establishes the expectations of the fledging relationship you've built using the previous steps, so that your efforts don't come off as dishonest or as ineffectual pandering. Here, Clendenin told Gunning that he needed him, or someone like him, to reach his goals at Xerox. He saw Gunning as a valuable but not indispensable partner. Clendenin was not asking Gunning for a specific favour in exchange for the one he'd granted in Step 2. He was simply saying he wanted him to become an ally. So those are the three R's Clendenin used to win over Gunning. But the article doesn't end there. It goes on to show how Clendenin went on to use an adaptation of them. The article ends like this. A key advantage of the three R's is that the method can work to reverse all kinds of rivalries, including those with a peer or a superior. Later in Clendenin's tenure at Xerox, he noticed an inefficiency in the company's inventory systems. At the time, Xerox was made up of semi-autonomous international units that stockpiled excess inventory to avoid shortages. 
Clendenin proposed that the units instead share their inventories through an interfirm network that would improve resource use and lower carrying costs for the company as a whole. Although the idea was objectively good for Xerox, it threatened the power of some unit vice-presidents, so when Glennon floated his idea, they shot it down. A short time later, however, following an unexpected announcement by the CEO that the company needed better asset management, Clendenin found a way to reintroduce his pr- proposal to the VPs. Because he knew they viewed him as an unwelcome challenger or rival, he used the three R's. His first move was to redirect their negative emotions away from him by planning a lunch for them at the regional office and serving them himself. This showed deference. He also presented himself not as an individual pushing a proposal, but as someone who could expedite organizational change, shifting the reference points of his rival's tension. With all of those egos and personalities, I never said, this is my idea, Clendenin recalls. I always said, we. Applying the reciprocity principle of give before you ask, he requested nothing from them at the meeting. Instead, he facilitated a discussion about the CEO-led initiative. Inventory management was, unsurprisingly, a problem cited by many of the VPs, and Clendenin's facilitation brought that to light. He then took on the luster of the person who had illuminated a generic problem, rather than someone who wanted to lessen the VP's autonomy. That allowed him to present the rationality of his original idea. All of a sudden, it looked like an opportunity, rather than a threat to the formerly antagonistic group. Glendennon indicated that he would be willing to coordinate a new system more cheaply than anyone else in the market could offer, while also noting that he might not have the time to do so in the future, which raised the perceived value of his offer. The VPs agreed to execute the plan in stages and put Clendenin in charge. The initiative grew in small but steady steps, eventually saving Xerox millions. Equally important, Clendenin's embrace by his rivals positioned him as a broker in the company and burnished his reputation as an institutional builder. John Clendenin understood that rivalries help no one. Indeed, success often depends on not just neutralizing your foes, but turning them into collaborators. By using the three R's to build trust in his network, Clendenin made sure everyone in his network thrived, including himself, Gunning, their team, the VPs and Xerox, forming the basis for long-term ties and shared success. Years later, Clendenin started his own international logistics company. His partner in this new endeavor was his old rival, Tom Gunning, and the lead investors were none other than the unit VPs from Xerox who had once shut down his ideas. So there you have one way from the business world of dealing with rivalries. Now let's turn to literature for a completely different kind of rivalry, the kind characterized in a short story by Guy de Maupassant, titled The Confession. It goes like this, and not being a French speaker, I ask for your forgiveness for my French pronunciations. Marguerite de Terrell was dying. Although but 56, she seemed like 75 at least. She panted, paler than the sheets, shaken by dreadful shiverings, her face convulsed, her eyes haggard, as if she'd seen some horrible thing. 
Her eldest sister, Suzanne, six years older, sobbed on her knees beside the bed. A little table drawn close to the couch of the dying woman and covered with a napkin bore two lighted candles, the priest being momentarily expected to give extreme unction and the communion, which should be the last. The apartment had that sinister aspect, that air of hopeless farewells, which belongs to the chambers of the dying. Medicine bottles stood about on the furniture. Linen lay in the corners, pushed aside by foot or broom. The disordered chairs themselves seemed affrighted, as if they'd run in all senses of the word. Death, the formidable, was there, hidden, waiting. The story of the two sisters was very touching. It was quoted far and wide, as it made many eyes to weep. Suzanne, the elder, had once been madly in love with a young man, who had also been in love with her. They were engaged, and were only waiting the day fixed for the contract, when Henri de Lampere suddenly died. The despair of the young girl was dreadful, and she vowed that she would never marry. She kept her word. She put on widow's weeds, which she never took off. Then her sister, her little sister Marguerite, who was only twelve years old, came one morning to throw herself into the arms of the elder and said, Big sister, I do not want thee to be unhappy. I do not want thee to cry all thy life. I will never leave thee, never, never. I, I too shall never marry. I shall stay with thee always, always, always. Suzanne, touched by the devotion of the child, kissed her, but did not believe. Yet the little one also kept her word, and despite the entreaties of her parents, despite the supplications of the elder, she never married. She was pretty, very pretty. She refused many a young man who seemed to love her truly, and she never left her sister more. They lived together all the days of their life without ever being separated a single time. They went side by side, inseparably united. But Marguerite seemed always sad, oppressed, more melancholy than the older, as though perhaps her sublime sacrifice had broken her spirit. She aged more quickly, had white hair from the age of thirty, and often suffering, seemed afflicted by some secret, gnawing trouble. Now she was to be the first to die. Since yesterday she was no longer able to speak. She'd only said, at the first glimmers of day-dawn, Go fetch Monsieur Le Carré, the moment has come. And she had remained since then upon her back, shaken with spasms, her lips agitated as though dreadful words were mounting from her heart without power of issue, her look mad with fear, terrible to see. Her sister, torn by sorrow, wept wildly, her forehead resting on the edge of the bed, and kept repeating, Margot, my poor Margot, my little one. She had always called her little one, just as the younger had always called her Big Sister. Steps were heard on the stairs. The door opened. A choir boy appeared, followed by an old priest in a surplice. As soon as she perceived him, the dying woman, with one shudder, sat up, opened her lips, stammered two or three words, and began to scratch the sheets with her nails as if she wished to make a hole. The Abbe Simon approached, took her hand, kissed her brow, and with a soft voice, God pardon thee, my child. Have courage. The moment is now come. Speak. Then Marguerite, shivering from head to foot, shaking her whole couch with nervous movements, stammered, 
Sit down, big sister. Listen. The priest bent down towards Suzanne, who was still flung upon the bed's foot. He raised her, placed her in an armchair, and taking a hand of each of the sisters in one of his own, he pronounced, Lord my God, endure them with strength, cast thy mercy upon them. And Marguerite began to speak. The words issued from her throat one by one, raucous, with sharp pauses, as though very feeble. Pardon, pardon, big sister. Oh, forgive. If thou knewest how I have had this fear of this moment all my life. Suzanne stammered through her tears. Forgive thee what, little one? Thou hast given all to me, sacrificed everything. Thou art an angel. But Marguerite interrupted her. Hush, hush. Let me speak. Do not stop me. It is dreadful. Let me tell all to the very end without flinching. Listen, thou rememberest, thou rememberest, Henri. Suzanne trembled and looked at her sister. The younger continued, Thou must hear all to understand. I was twelve years old, only twelve years old. Thou rememberest well, is it not so? And I was spoiled. I did everything that I liked. Thou rememberest surely how they spoiled me. Listen, the first time that he came, he had varnished boots. He got down from his horse at the great steps, and he begged pardon for his costume, but he came to bring some news to Papa. Thou rememberest, is it not so? Now don't speak, listen. When I saw him, I was completely carried away. I found him so very beautiful, and I remained standing in a corner of the salon all the time that he was talking. Children are strange and terrible. Oh, yes, I have dreamed of all that. He came back again, several times. I looked at him with all my eyes, with all my soul. I was large of my age and very much more knowing than anyone thought. He came back often. I thought only of him. I said very low, Henri, Henri de l'Empere. Then they said that he was going to marry thee. Oh, it was a sorrow. Oh, big sister, a sorrow, a sorrow. I cried for three nights without sleeping. He came back every day in the afternoon, after his lunch. Thou rememberest, is it not so? No, say nothing. Listen. Thou amazed him cakes which he liked, with meal, with butter and milk. Oh, I know well how. I could make them yet if it were needed. He ate them at one mouthful, and, and then he drank a glass of wine, and then he said, It is delicious. Thou rememberest how he would say that? Oh, I was jealous, jealous. The moment of thy marriage approached. There were only two weeks more. I became crazy. I said to myself, He shall not marry Suzanne. No, I will not have it. It is I whom he will marry when I am grown up. I shall never find anyone whom I love so much. But one night, ten days before the contract, thou tookst a walk with him in front of the chateau by moonlight. And there, under the fir, under the great fir, he kissed thee, kissed, holding thee in his two arms so long. Thou rememberest, is it not so? It was probably the first time, yes, Thou wast so pale when thou camest back to the salon. I had seen you two. I was there in the shrubbery. 
I was angry. If I could, I should have killed you both. I said to myself, he shall not marry Suzanne, never. He shall marry no one. I should be too unhappy. And all of a sudden, I began to hate him dreadfully. Then dost thou know what I did? Listen. I had seen the gardener making little balls to kill strange dogs. He pounded up a bottle with a stone and put the powdered glass in a little ball of meat. I took a little medicine bottle that Mama had. I broke it small with a hammer, and I hid the glass in my pocket. It was a shining powder. And the next day, as soon as you had made the little cakes, I split them with a knife, and I put in the glass. He ate three of them. I, too, I ate one. I threw the other six into the pond. The two swans died three days after. Dost thou remember? Oh, say nothing. Listen, listen. I, I alone did not die. But I have always been sick. Listen. He died. Thou knowest well. Listen. That, that is nothing. It is afterwards, later, always the worst. Listen. My life, all my life, what torture. I said to myself, I will never leave my sister. And at the hour of death, I will tell her all. There, ever since, I've always thought of that moment when I shall tell thee all. Now it is come. It is terrible. Oh, big sister. I've always thought morning and evening, by night and by day, sometime I must tell her that. I waited. What agony. It is done. Say nothing. Now I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Oh, I'm afraid. If I'm going to see him again soon when I'm dead. See him again. Think of it. The first, before thou. I shall not dare. I must. I'm going to die. I want you to forgive me. I want it. I cannot go off to meet him without that. Oh, tell her to forgive me, Monsieur le Curé. Tell her I implore you to do it. I cannot die without that. She was silent and remained panting, always scratching the sheet with her withered nails. Suzanne had hidden her face in her hands and did not move. She was thinking of him whom she might have loved so long. What a good life they should have lived together. She saw him once again in that vanished bygone time, in that old past which was put out forever. The beloved dead, how they tear your hearts. Oh, that kiss, his only kiss. She had hidden it in her soul. And after it, nothing, nothing more her whole life long. All of a sudden the priest stood straight, and with a strong, vibrant voice he cried, Mademoiselle Suzanne, your sister is dying. Then Suzanne, opening her hands, showed her face soaked with tears, and throwing herself upon her sister, she kissed her with all her might, stammering, I forgive thee, I forgive thee, little one. And that is confession by Guy du Maupassant. And why on earth in a program about Buddhism am I reading a melodrama of two sisters by a French author? Well, if you've been with the program in the last few weeks, you will know that we are following a text titled Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun and have come to a section on how to deal with difficult situations. 
In his commentary, the author of Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, Nam Karpel, gives five situations of most difficulty we should prepare for. That is, situations involving our loved ones, those we live with, those who are our rivals, those who accuse us falsely, and those we dislike. In previous programs, we've talked about how to deal with situations involving our close ones, those we live with, and last week, rivals. So do you see the connection now? Even though she was only 12 years old, Marguerite saw herself as her sister's rival for the heart of Henri de la Père, and that very perception caused her to do unspeakable things. And this is the extreme problem of dealing with rivalry. If we give in to it, it can lead not only to great suffering to others, but to our own unbearable pain. Nam Kapel warns about rejoicing at a rival's misfortune, but that is only the beginning. Yielding to that rejoicing, we take our rivalry so much further, and that can lead to dire results, especially once we realize the enormity of what we've done. One might say that Marguerite was only 12 years old, and adults don't behave in that fashion. But that's obviously not true. Try, try reading the newspaper, and you will regularly come across stories of real adult people doing unspeakable things to those they see as rivals. The New Zealand Herald had just such a story very recently when it reported how in court a prosecutor alleged that a man, and I quote, went berserk and unleashed a torrent of powerful blows on a love rival after finding him living with a wom woman he considered his girlfriend. The man's name was Matthew Bryan Edmonds and he is to stand trial for the murder of one Peter Bettink in November last year. Edmonds denies the charge though the Crown Prosecutor said he lost it when he found Mr. Bettink living with his ex-partner. He was absolutely livid, she said. So angry he attacked Mr. Bettink with such force he killed him. This even though he and the woman had separated. Obviously, he didn't think the relationship was over and had kept up a barrage of texts and phone messages to her. On the particular day of the alleged murder, Edmonds tried to contact his ex-partner many times, but failed and then made a six-hour journey to her house where he found Mr. Bettink. His ex-partner was out shopping, but when she came back, he and the ex-partner got into an argument, and when Mr. Bettink intervened, Edmund, according to the prosecution, unleashed a torrent of powerful blows to his face and his head. Edmunds denies he was enraged. The attack was not premeditated, and he was very sorry it ended up the way it did. In any case, whether the prosecution or the defence story is true, the rivalry led to the death of one man and the possible incarceration of the other. Part of the tragedy of this type of story is that it is not uncommon. Going back to the Guy de Maupassant story, part of its significance is in indicating how we can deal with rivals. With all its operatic tone, the story concludes with a rush of forgiveness and, we presume, an absolution of sorts. Of course, if Suzanne were a real person and not a fictional character, she will in the future possibly have solitary moments of intense blame of her sister, even though she has for sworn forgiveness. But perhaps the remembrance of Marguerite's great emotional and mental agony will remind her that the doer of evil suffers more than the receiver, and once again compassion and forgiveness can overwhelm the blame. Similarly, in our lives, no doubt, we have wronged those we've seen as rivals, 
as have others seen us as rivals and wronged us. It is important that not only do we forgive our rivals, but that we also in our hearts ask for their forgiveness. And then we have to do our best to transform the urge towards rivalry between ourselves and others. Now let's finish the program today with another kind of rivalry, one brought on by discontent. It comes from a teaching by Ajahn Brahm about when he was a monk in Thailand, and it goes like this. Life as a very junior monk in Thailand seemed so unfair. The senior monks received the best food, sat on the softest cushions, and never had to push wheelbarrows. Whereas my one meal of the day was disgusting, I had to sit for long hours in ceremonies on the hard concrete floor, which was lumpy as well because the villagers were hopeless at laying concrete, and sometimes I had to labor very hard. Poor me, lucky them. I spent long, unpleasant hours justifying my complaints to myself. The senior monks were probably so enlightened that delicious food would be wasted on them. Therefore, I should get the best food. The senior monks had been sitting cross-legged on hard floors for years and were used to it. Therefore, I should get the big soft cushions. Moreover, the senior monks were all fat anyway from eating the best food, so had natural upholstery to their butts. The senior monks just told us junior monks to do the work, never laboring themselves, so how could they appreciate how hot and tiring pushing wheelbarrows was? The projects were all their ideas anyway, so they should do the work. Poor me, lucky them. When I became a senior monk, then I ate the best food, sat on a soft cushion and did little physical work. However, I caught myself envying the junior monks. They didn't have to give all the public talks, didn't listen to people's problems all day, and didn't spend hours on administration. They had no responsibilities and so much time for themselves. I heard myself saying, poor me, lucky them. I soon figured out what was going on. Junior monks have junior monk suffering. Senior monks have senior monk suffering. When I became a senior monk, I was just exchanging one form of suffering for another form of suffering. It is precisely the same for single people who envy those who are married and the married people who envy those who are single. As we all should know by now, when we get married, we are only exchanging single person suffering for married person suffering. Then, when we get divorced, we are only exchanging married person suffering for single person suffering. Poor me, lucky them. When we are poor, we envy those who are rich. However, many who are rich envy the sincere friendships and freedom from responsibilities of those who are poor. Becoming rich is only exchanging poor person suffering for rich person suffering. Retiring and taking a cut in your income is only exchanging rich person suffering for poor person suffering. And so it goes on. Poor me, lucky them. To think that you will be happy by becoming something else is delusion. Becoming something else just exchanges one form of suffering for another form of suffering. But when you are content with who you are now, junior or senior, married or single, rich or poor, then you are free of suffering. Lucky me, 
poor them. And there we must end the program today for our time is up. Thanks for joining us and please dedicate the positive potential to gaining enlightenment for all beings. Cheers and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.